everyone, Nick here with your latest installment of the Far Middle Podcast. I've got a special episode coming at you, so let's move. We're going to tie our sports dedication to the year 1978, and I'm going to explain and connect to that year in a minute. Summer of 78 saw your host as a kid and a baseball fan mesmerized by a streak, a hitting streak by Charlie Hustle, also known as Pete Rose, also known as the Hit King. Rose won on a remarkable 44-game hitting streak that year, second best in the history of baseball, and the only serious threat to Joe D's 56 games and that record uh, that was ever seen and has ever been seen since. Now, Rose was 37 years old at the time, supposedly at the end of his career after he notched his 3,000th hit early that season in 1978. He went into a massive slump early and through mid-June of that season. He was making solid contact over the slump, but unfortunately he was hitting the ball right to fielders um, game after game, at bat after at bat. Rose started that streak on June 14th, and it sputtered along. That's the best way I would describe it early, with Rose not hitting well, but somehow spreading the hits out so that he managed to, to get one every day at every game. On July 4th, he reached 20 games, and that was the fifth one of his epic career to date. And by the way, Rose and Ty Cobb, they recorded hitting streaks of at least 20 games or more eight times in their careers, which is the most in the modern era. At the All-Star break, Rose had to streak to 25 games, and that's when he was quoted as saying, I might go on forever. Never short of confidence, Pete Rose. Rose broke the Cincinnati team record for hitting streak mid-July at 28 games, which was half, just by coincidence, of DiMaggio's magical 56 games. Someone quoted DiMaggio that summer saying, someday someone will break it, and if that's the case, I hope it's Pete Rose. It's a classy statement from Joe DiMaggio. Now, what did Pete Rose respond with when he heard that, um, that quip from DiMaggio? He said, that's pretty great. I hope it's Pete Rose, too. Gotta love Pete Rose uh, with his ability to, to offer up quotes. Now, the pressure was building. Rose was on the front page of every sports section, including mine in Pittsburgh. That's how I was able to track him. And it certainly, as I said, had my full attention as a kid. Pete Rose broke the National League modern record at 38 games, and then he broke the 40-game barrier. Now, all that was left was DiMaggio's 56. But it came to an end at 44 games in Atlanta, a Gene Garber strikeout sealed the deal. Any of you constant listeners remember Gene Garber with the Braves? And DiMaggio's 56, of course, it still reigns supreme. By the way, Rose did not hit a home run during the entire 44-game hit streak, which I thought was interesting. For kids like myself at that time, and for baseball fans all over the nation, that summer of 1978 and that hitting streak by Pete Rose, it was a magical one for the ages and thus serves as our dedication for episode 122. For you constant listeners that have been tuning in for the past few episodes, you know we've been on a run of diving deep on a big, singular issue. A few weeks back, we explored in depth the horrible track record and the gross inaccuracy of the expert class when it comes to climate change predictions and the future. That was an epic streak of ineptitude that now spans 100 years. And then last episode, we dove deep once again, this time on the topic of the joy and the perils of mentoring young adults in the year 2023. 
great opportunities with both episodes to discuss a duo of topics that we hit on for some time on the far middle. So with episode 122, we're going to keep the singular theme approach going for yet another week. And this is going to be a topic that I've been looking forward to discussing with you for some time, because today I get to settle into one of my ideological North Stars, a person whose thoughts and impact I didn't awaken to until a few short years ago. And I can only wish that I would have had a better appreciation for this man's views decades ago. It's not a stretch for me to place his key contributions on a pedestal alongside some of my other ideological and policy and philosophical heroes, whether it's Ayn Rand or George Orwell or Milton Friedman, to name three incredibly important ones to me. Now, I didn't agree, and I don't agree, with everything this person advocated, but there was a critical set of views he espoused that I find incredibly compelling. So enough already. Who is this genius? Who's this shining light? His name? Vaclav Havel. Now, this is the part of the podcast when some of you listening nod your head in agreement and say, yes, of course, Havel. Others are listening and thinking to themselves, Václav who? Which is understandable because as great as this guy, Havel, was, he's largely unknown in America today. And that is lamentable, bordering in some ways on criminal. And he isn't a historical figure from hundreds of years ago. This is a man of the 20th and 21st centuries who passed away just over a decade ago. He's a contemporary. So let me start with a quick bio of Havel. He was born just prior to World War II, kicking off in Europe in 1936 in Czechoslovakia. And he turned out to be a lot of things. He was an author, a poet, a playwright, a dissident, and ultimately a statesman and leader of his nation, or nations, I should say. Yeah, he's the guy that you might remember as the poet that rose to the presidency of Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic when the wall came down in the late 80s, early 90s. In fact, Havel served as the first and last president of Czechoslovakia up to its dissolution, and then he became the first president of the Czech Republic, and he served in that role for 10 years. He was the first democratically elected president of both nations, Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic, after the fall of communism. I think it's safe to say he had the confidence of his countrymen and countrywomen. Havel first rose to prominence as a playwright, and he utilized a really effective technique, a cool one. It was an absurdist style to criticize the communist system. After participating in the Prague Spring in 1968, he ended up getting blacklisted after the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia and forcibly put down the movement. I guess over 4,000 invading tanks and over 100,000 troops will do that. And Havel became more politically active, and he spent multiple periods as a political prisoner, uh, the longest of his imprisoned terms being nearly four years, which stretched into the early 1980s. Havel played a key role in what came to be known as the Velvet Revolution that toppled the communist system in Czechoslovakia in 1989. And he assumed the presidency shortly thereafter, and he was instrumental in dismantling the Warsaw Pact and enlarging NATO membership eastward. And many of his stances, um, they ended up being quite controversial domestically at home for him. And it's fair to say that by the end of his presidency, he enjoyed greater popularity abroad than at home. 
Havel continued his life as a public intellectual after his presidency, and his views have been called a lot of things, everything from anti-consumerism, humanitarianism, environmentalism, civil activism, and direct democracy. And for you world travelers, you might already know this, the international airport in Prague is named after Havel. But what gobsmacked me with Havel was an essay that he penned in 1978, the year of, and the connection to, our dedication to Pete Rose's hitting streak. And right around or before the time, Havel was being imprisoned for his longest stint of four years. The essay title is The Power of the Powerless, and it is genius and inspiring and thought-provoking and timely for today. We'll talk about why it's timely throughout the discussion, which provides irony when one considers Havel's affinity for environmentalism. There was environmentalism then, I suppose, and radical environmentalism today. So hold that thought for a few minutes. Havel was a visionary. He feared a future where society would be diverted by consumerism and television and things that we today know as reality TV and social media. The diversion or distraction would take individual citizens' attention away from the substantive action happening in the public sphere. He saw a crisis of contemporary technological society. Individuals ended up enslaving themselves because they didn't ask who they were and what they should be doing. It was often referenced as a form of modern unfreedom. Havel was able to inject his experiences into positing his philosophy, and he'd make his points through his plays and most notably through that essay, The Power of the Powerless. A key example of how what he experienced in life fed his writings was a friend who worked at a brewery. And the friend who was the employee, he knew a better way to improve the brewing process. He was a smart guy and a solid employee, and he cared about his craft. That employee also knew he should keep quiet and keep his head down in a socialist and communist system and just simply defer to his superiors at the plant. Yet the employee couldn't help himself. He had to speak up. And he did speak up with respect to his ideas for improving the efficiency of the brewing process and the quality of the beer. And he exposed himself in the end to the likelihood of the consequences to doing so. Havel used this story to illustrate his key concept of living in truth. That's a a crucial term that we'll talk about a lot in the coming couple of minutes, living in truth. And the point he was making was that even though a single lowly employee in a giant machinery of an organization or system had little direct connection to the beer, that individual fundamentally cared about the quality of the beer and the efficiency of the process. It was connected to the essence of who the individual was, even though that employee didn't own the brewery and wasn't solely responsible for the product. The employee cared because it was core to who he was. Havel referenced this employee as an individual who was living in truth. And Havel introduced the idea that the brewer or anyone else in a controlling society who lived in truth were effectively becoming what he referenced as dissidents. And we're going to spend more time defining what dissident means within Havel's philosophy. I can tell you now that it's not what we typically think of in the West with the term dissident. But his most famous story to illustrate how one lives in truth and can become a dissident in what he referenced as a post-totalitarian society 
which I'll also define for you in a minute what a post-totalitarian society means. The most famous example of this was his shopkeeper character in the essay, The Power of the Powerless. He used the shopkeeper to highlight his themes in a communist system, how it would apply in a communist system. But the learnings and lessons apply to the West today with the ongoing stifling of individual freedoms by the left. The story and individual that Havel utilizes in his essay is an anonymous and nameless greengrocer who hangs a sign in his window that reads, Workers of the World Unite, including the exclamation point at the end. Havel points out that no one, including the greengrocer in Czechoslovakia in the late 1970s, cared anything about that famous line from Karl Marx. It was a stock phrase that everyone came to blindly accept and adhere to, but it was not a unifying belief or something that inspired the individual in Czechoslovakia in the late 1970s, whether it be the greengrocer in the essay, the friend who worked at the brewery, or any other typical individual. But what the greengrocer was doing by placing that message, that sign in his window, was that he was communicating to society and the community that he was obedient, that he fit in, and that he was willing to live in the world that was defined to him by the system. What's interesting about the greengrocer is that the sign sported the common stock phrase instead of stating something more direct, like a sign that would say, hey, I'm a sheep and I blindly and obediently follow what the system tells me to. The greengrocer sign explicitly states one thing, but implicitly informs of something quite different. And he was able to communicate that implied meaning through his sign without having to explicitly state it. And the greengrocer is also playing a key component of what we would call peer pressure or what within a system of government or ideology would be known as indoctrination. The greengrocer didn't receive an order by the government to compel him to put that sign in the window. He did it because he saw that others did it too, and it becomes self-fulfilling and self-determining because the next person who walks past the shop sees the sign, and that makes it more likely that next individual walking past or into the store seeing the sign will then put the same type of sign up in their home or in their place of business. It all feeds on itself, a form of self or auto-indoctrination. What Havel showed us in his essay was that some systems that are totalitarian are not because a single person, a dictator like Hitler or Stalin or Putin, has total power. But instead, a system or society becomes totalitarian in some situations because power is shared in a state of irresponsibility. Citizens become both supporters and victims of the totalitarian system. They individually and collectively decide to not live in truth. Havel's genius was highlighting the freedom may not exactly be what we think it is, particularly in those societies he tagged as post-totalitarian. Now, we think in the modern West that freedom is doing the things that we're inclined to do. But Havel taught us that freedom is contemplating what you should do as an individual, and then having the courage to go do that very thing, even though it will risk the ire of the system or society. That's a deeper, more meaningful form of freedom. Let's use the bulk of our remaining time in this episode to pull excerpts from the power of the powerless, and then perhaps apply them to what we see occurring today in America. 
I think you'll find today's United States is indeed showing signs of a post-totalitarian system where many of our fellow Americans, they refuse to live in truth. And those who decide to live in truth are indeed feeling and looking more and more like those dissidents that Havel taught us about. The first item I will reference, it's actually the first sentence in his essay. He wrote, a specter is haunting Eastern Europe, the specter of what in the West is called dissent. So Havel leads with this to set up an explanation of his premise as to why this is true. And indeed, I believe that a specter is now haunting the West, which is run by the left. And it is the same specter in Havel's essay on dissent. I referenced that uh, Havel's term that he uses throughout of a post-totalitarian system. Let's explore that. It's a good point to do that. He did a masterful job pointing out how the post-totalitarian system is one that subdues the citizenry. The system does so by subsidy and giveaways from government to the individual. He talked about how things like low rents with housing, it comes with a price. The price is surrendering one's own reason and your conscience and responsibility. And that is a core objective of a post-totalitarian system. You take away reason and conscience from the individual and you then assign those things to a higher authority, to the system. You fast forward to 2023 in the United States and think about how the left provides government handout after handout, whether it be entitlements or healthcare or student debt forgiveness or corporate subsidy and so on. But in exchange for what? Well, in exchange for something that is quite precious, surrendering the individual's right to choose for themselves, for the individual to live in truth. So whether it was Havel's Eastern Europe in the late 1970s or America today, the benefits bestowed upon citizens by a post-totalitarian system, they are far from free and in fact will end up being the most expensive benefits that you can imagine. And I also want to explore a little deeper that sign that was in the greengrocer's shop window in the essay. That sign again said, workers of the world unite with an exclamation point. Can you think of an eerie analogy today in the West? Well, I can for sure. Climate action now, including the exclamation point at the end. You see those signs everywhere in large manicured suburban front lawns, which by the way is more than ironic, in corporate public relations materials, in high-priced colleges that are the signs are hanging on student union bulletin boards, and on t-shirts. Now, are the people who support these signs truly enthusiastic? Have they given it any serious thought as to what the message might mean? It's evident that the overwhelming majority of those bearing the Climate Action Now signs are not and they have not. Someone or something produced those signs and then distributed them to the greengrocer in Havel's story or the student suburbanite or company in today's America. The signs go up because everyone is doing it because that's the accepted norm within the system. If you don't support the sign, there's going to be consequences. You support the sign to get along in life. You put up the sign so that you're assured of not being hassled. Havel did a masterful job of pointing out what the sign implies by those who are displaying it. It's a subliminal yet powerful message that the greengrocer then or the student today, they both know what one must do and how one must behave. 
And the sign, it looks to deliver such a message to those in power as well as to fellow citizens. Note that the sign also implies that the individual is scared and intimidated in a follower. But that's where the explicit message of the sign comes into play. It provides a way to soothe the ego of the obedient individual because the explicit message demands proactive action, uniting the workers or climate action, again, both with you know, resounding exclamation marks at the end. And the approach in a post-totalitarian system, it's diabolically genius. It provides an explicit illusion of being moral while underneath, in reality, it makes it easier for the individual to part with his or her morality. And that's true whether it was for communism in Eastern Europe in the late 1970s with the green grocer and his worker sign, or with the left running the West today with the student or suburbanite and their climate signs. Havel illuminated the difference between the objective of the post-totalitarian system or government run by the left, versus the objective of life and human nature. There was what he referenced as an abyss between the two, a huge difference. With the individual and human nature, you saw a striving and hunger toward diversity and individualism and self-organization and a fulfillment of one's own freedom. You compare that to the objective of the post-totalitarian system, and that is forcing individuals into predefined states in a movement toward rigid structure and belief, and you get a feel for that giant gap or gulf between the two. And that post-totalitarian approach, or the playbook of the left, so to speak, results in self-preservation being secondary to a blind obedience that drives the system. Individuals are not deemed by the system or the state to be worth anything in themselves, Individuals are nothing more than cogs in the machinery of the post-totalitarian system. And this approach leads to a constant hypocrisy. And you see it everywhere, both in his day in the late 1970s in Czechoslovakia, as well as today in these United States. You see government by bureaucracy being called popular government, even though it's anything but. You see the working class or middle class becoming enslaved within the system but that occurs in the name of and in the interests of the working class and the middle class. Taking away the freedoms of the individual, that's done in the name of defending the rights of the individual. Denying society information and censoring it, that's called making things transparent and truthful and accessible. A bureaucrat's subjective and wide use of power, that gets labeled as adhering to the law or the constitution. And suppressing free speech becomes a way to protect individual rights, including free speech. And punishing scientific thought and the scientific method is to further the science. To propagate the charade in the post-totalitarian system of Havel, or with contemporary government run by the left today in the West, the system's going to need to continually falsify everything. Statistics, data, history, and current situation. Now, how many times have we seen that phenomenon these days with cherry-picking statistical data sets for things like climate models, with selectively reporting on one set of weather events while ignoring other sets of weather events, and by constantly changing predictions into the future and then conveniently ignoring prior predictions that keep proving as inaccurate time and again? The culmination 
of this ongoing onslaught by the system is that the system transforms reality into a ritual of signs in pseudo-reality. Science gets replaced with political science. Objective reality is replaced with religion of the system. All of it manifested in signs and slogans, such as your climate action now in Code Red. And this will impact everyone in the society, from the lowliest of the working class to the most elite of the educated class. That's why we all know that some of the smartest people and most successful individuals in our lives, they blindly adhere to ideologies such as extreme environmentalism that's tied to climate change. The process that the post-totalitarian system employs, it works on all strata of society and all education levels. I suppose, and Havel suggested, that there is a psychology at play here. People sport the slogans and the signs not looking to persuade others, but instead to conform and contribute to the wider view and objective of reminding people what is expected of them. It's affirmation of what the herd is doing and coercing subliminally others to comply or face alienation from society, along with losing the peaceful lifestyle that comes with it. Individuals are conscripted into the system's effort to help each other become obedient. Individuals are instruments of control and at the same time, subjects of control. Using Havel's words, they are both victims of the system and its instruments. Now the price paid is a serious one. Individuals are drawn into the orbit of the post-totalitarian system, AKA the left, and in doing so, they are denied being able to realize themselves as human beings. They give up their individual identity in exchange for being part of the identity of the system. Each person in the end becomes capable of coming to terms with living within the lie instead of living within the truth. One then ends up going with the flow. But someone once quipped that the only fish that go with the flow are dead ones. Now let's make it real interesting. What happens if that greengrocer decides to stop putting up that sign in his window or if the Climate Action Now sign is taken out of the yard? What if they begin to say what they really think? Or if they start following objective truth and what the conscience demands? What they are doing is in some ways a revolt. But within Havel's way of thinking, they were deciding to now attempt to live within the truth. By deciding to live within the truth, one breaks the rules of the game, and then you expose the game as the ruse that it is. It becomes clear that living a lie is just that. It's living a lie. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz when one finally gets to see what's behind the curtain. So that means that for the post-totalitarian system, or for government run by the left in the West today, the ultimate fundamental threat to its power will be individuals daring to live within the truth. Just as there was a cumulative effect that snowballed society into living the lie, when an individual chooses to live within the truth, the system runs the risk of teetering and disintegrating. Rest assured, that post-totalitarian system is going to react to such an individual deciding to live within the truth. You see that today when the left will accuse someone speaking their mind as lusting for money or fame or notoriety. But none of that is true. Most individuals who decide to live within the truth, they've got no prior political activity or affinity for politics. 
They just want to be able to exert their own individual freedoms. Freedom to speak, freedom to participate, freedom of thought. And dare I say, even freedom to do and to create value and to, dare I say, utilize energy. Are you starting to see how climate change and Code Red are foundational tenets of the left's post-totalitarian system of today? And you probably can also begin to see why Havel considered individuals looking to live within the truth in a post-totalitarian system as dissidents with a slightly different right, connotation than we typically think of dissident. It's not so much that the individual proactively acts as a dissident as much as it is that the system treats the individual as a dissident. The media will end up shunning or ignoring such individuals or maybe even ridiculing them. And they will be unable to publish their thoughts. The individual who lives within the truth will not be able to publish their thoughts. The individual living within the truth speaks freely, despite the system looking to prohibit such. The views of the dissident living in truth start to stretch beyond his or her discrete circles, and they start to gain traction across wider circles of society. The individuals in this category, they start to become more known for their thoughts and ideas than their respective professions. That's basically, when you think about it, how Havel evolved from a renowned poet and playwright into a political leader and president. He was the ultimate dissident living within the truth in a post-totalitarian system. And individuals living within the truth in that post-totalitarian system are labeled renegades by the system but they don't consider themselves to be renegades because there aren't, they're not rejecting anything. They're not against anything. Instead, what they are demanding is to live within the truth and to exert individual freedom. They're thrown into the situation effectively by a sense of personal responsibility coupled within the external environment of the times. And when these individuals say aloud what others are afraid to say or cannot say, then dissidents living in the truth, they start to become inspiring. And that is a threat, obviously, to the system, especially if the dissident living within the truth decides to jump from no longer living within the lie, but then ultimately or eventually or sometimes straight to proactively advocating for the truth. Living within the truth in that situation when you're proactively advocating, that becomes vocal and visible to all. And one note of clarification a post-totalitarian system, that does not mean effectively or always a dictatorship. A dictatorship, if you think about one, has no need to respect the law. Whereas the post-totalitarian system, specifically today's big government run by the left, has great use for the law. It uses the law to create power and to preserve it in the form of control over the individual. Tightly regulating and weaving an intricate web of complexity within the law, those are extremely important tactics for the post-totalitarian system of the left today. I hope you enjoyed this discussion on Havel and his thought-provoking work, The Power of the Powerless. I must mention that it's very intriguing to me that he was an environmentalist. I mentioned that earlier. Yet many of the things that he exposed of the system and warned against They are embedded within today's extreme environmental movement of the left. I can only wonder what he would think today of Code Red and climate action now. I close with a classic far middle connection to the individual dissident living within the truth 
in a post-totalitarian system in America in both today and back in 1787. Constitution Day recognizes the adoption of the United States Constitution, as well as those who have become American citizens. It was celebrated a few days ago, September 17th, on the day in 1787 that delegates to the Constitutional Convention signed the document in Philadelphia. And I like to think that the founders in the late 1700s and their product, the Constitution, inspired Havel in the late 1970s and his product, the power of the powerless, so that you constant listeners and I have the conviction to be dissidents living within the truth in America in 2023. Bye for now.